0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.
1: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Ruth. uh, Toward the beginning of your Bible... Uh, after the first five books, and then Joshua and Judges, then there is Ruth. And we're going to spend the month of September, Lord willing, walking through this. There are four chapters in the book of Ruth, and so the intention is to take one chapter each week and walk through this. Now, there's, there's a difference here. I spent all of this past year preaching through books that were heavy in doctrine, we walked through uh, you know, books that just were rich with theological concepts. This is different. Ruth is a narrative. It's a story. And so this is going to be a little different. We're going to let the, let the, the text itself tell the story of Ruth, if you will. So as you're turning there to Ruth chapter 1, let me introduce another story to you. William Cooper, uh, spelled Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, uh, but it's pronounced Cooper. William Cooper was born in 1731 in England, lived to, lived to 1800. He was 69 years old when he died. Uh, he, when he was born, six years after he was born, his mother died suddenly. Uh, and this really launched him into a lifelong battle with depression. He sank into what was called melancholy, and, and he, he really had these fits of just sorrow and sadness. And uh, he had four major battles throughout his life, and, uh, and he, this caused him to attempt suicide several different times. Uh, thankfully, the Lord preserved his life, and he was unsuccessful in those attempts. Um, William Cooper was saved in 1764 when he was a patient in an insane asylum. He was, he was a patient, a, a resident at the St. Albans Insane Asylum there in England, and uh, he was walking through the gardens one day, and he happened upon a Bible that was resting on a bench, and he picked up the Bible, and he opened it to, I think it was John 10 or John 11, and also to Romans 3.25, and God used the Word of God in the midst of an insane asylum to save William Cooper. Later on in his life, as as he, as he transitioned, he still battled depression and what was called melancholy, but somewhere along the lines, he got connected with John Newton. You're familiar with the name John Newton because John Newton was the former slave ship captain who was saved by the grace of God and who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And John Newton connected himself with William Cooper and pressed into William Cooper and tried to draw out the... the um, the things that God was doing in the mind of William Cooper. He took him along on visitation, and and eventually he pressed him into writing hymns. William Cooper has written some of of the hymns that we sing still today, and one of those I'd like to bring to your attention is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I want to share with you um, the lyrics to this hymn. It says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in in unfathomable minds of ever-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread and are, are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Now listen to these next two. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. We come to one of the greatest stories, not just in all the Bible, but one of the greatest stories in the history of, uh, of literature. And it is a love story. It is a love story that, that has all of these shows that, that uh, you all are getting ready to watch on the Hallmark Channel have nothing on this story. These are filled, this, Ruth is filled with tragedy, despair, romance, rescue. And we're going to see all of this, but before we get to the, the good part, there's going to be this despair that we come to at first. And this theme of, of thinking that God somehow in his providence, while you believe in his sovereignty, that somehow he's frowning upon you, I want you to see in the book of Ruth that his frown Behind it, he hides a smile because he loves you and he loves me and he is doing something in us that in the end, as his own interpreter, he will make plain. So if you will, I'm going to read certain sections of Ruth. We'll talk through it. Then I'll read more. Then we'll talk through and we'll work our way through chapter one this morning. Starting in verse one of Ruth chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And but Elimelech the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now let's take some time and walk through these first five verses to to set the context of what we're looking at. Here's the story. Here's the introduction. And here's the point that will serve over these first five verses. Our wandering comes at great price. Our wandering comes at great price. Uh, it starts out and it tells us there that in the days when the judges ruled. This is more than simply a historical marker to, to let us know when in history this is taking place. This is making a theological statement. We know that there was a point in Israel's history where, where there were not, didn't have a king yet. And the people had been governed by this theocracy. And God had promised that if they would be faithful and obey, that he would bless them. And if they didn't, then he would bring curses. And Judges is the history of Israel rebelling against God, wandering away from him. God raising up a nation to bring judgment upon them. Them crying out to the Lord to save them. And then God sending a judge to rescue them out of that. And there was this repeated cycle throughout the book of Judges. And we know this is more than historical because if you look back one page in your Bible, if you were to turn back to the last chapter of Judges... And the last verse of Judges, it says this In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so, this gives us this theological context of what is going on here. That here, in the, when it says, In the days when the judges ruled, we know that everyone in, in this point of history, they are doing what's right in their own eyes. And we're going to see this play out with, with, uh, with the Elimelech here, the husband and father in our story, as he does what's right in his own eyes and takes his family to Moab. It, the second phrase here that I would point your attention to is, there was a famine in the land. Now, I've already told you that God had promised them that if they would be faithful and obedient, that he would bring blessing upon them. But if they were disobedient, then he would bring cursing. And we can surmise from this that since there is a famine in the land, in the land of promise, that it's in one of these times, since God is faithful to keep his promises, that it is in one of these times when they are unfaithful to him and he has sent curse upon them. The famine is not random, it is an act of God. Deuteronomy twenty-eight twenty-three says that if they would not obey, the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. Now get that picture. That that the skies above seem to be just just hard as bronze, that nothing is coming out of them. There is no rain falling, and it has not fallen for some time, and the ground beneath them has become like iron. I mean, we've had we've had dry spells around here, and we've had we've had drought seasons, but I don't know that we've ever had a time where it was the, the skies, the heavens above were bronze and the, the ground beneath our feet were iron. This is a serious plague here, and it is is one that is given by God to them in their wandering. The third phrase, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in Moab with his wife and his two sons. There's some irony and there's some shock in this, in this, uh, this third phrase. The irony is that the man is from Bethlehem. The name for Bethlehem means the house of bread. And the reason that he leaves, leaves from the house of bread is because there is no bread in the house of bread. And there's irony here in this. There's, and and he's, he's feeling the weight of the sin, the wandering of Israel. The shock comes in where he takes his family to. He takes them to Moab. Moab was not the place that you would uproot your family and move them to because it was a wholesome place to live. Moab was despised by the Israelites and for good reason. Uh, the beginning of Moab came from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his own daughter. Moab, uh, while Israel was uh, wandering in the wilderness after they had left Egypt and before they entered the promised land, Moab refused to let Israel pass through their country even though it would have helped. Moab's women had been notorious for seducing Israelite men, which brought about um, a judgment of God, where 24,000 men were, were, were dropped dead in one day. Moab didn't have a good reputation with the people of Israel. Elimelech knew this. I would point your attention back to the fact that this is in the, in the days when there was not a king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Elimelech here takes matters into his own hands, and he says, look, the the skies above me are like bronze. The the ground beneath me is like iron. i got to do something to feed my family. There's no bread in in the house of bread, so I'm going to take my family somewhere. Where do I go? I'll go to Moab. This is shocking. We see the cast here revealed in these first five verses. We, We see Elimelech. Elimelech, his name means my God is king, which he didn't live up to. Because when when the going got tough, he did not trust his king. See, he should have remained there in the land of promise and trusted the Lord to provide. But he didn't. He took matters into his own own hands and he said, I know my name means my God is king, but in this moment I want to be my own king and I will make my own decisions. Naomi is another character. She is the wife of Elimelech and her name means pleasant, pleasant. They have two boys, Malon. His name means something like sickly. How'd you like that? That'd be your name? Here's sickly. His brother wasn't any better. His brother Chilion, his name meant something like frail or weakling, or as we used to say in East Tennessee, puny. Sometimes I would would be getting sick or I would look like I was starting to get sick, and my mom would say, what's wrong with you? You're not feeling well. You look puny. I used to think don't call me that, mom. I'm not puny, you know. Uh, my mom probably still would say that to me if I looked that way. So, uh, so there's the cast, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Chilion, and we're going to see in just a few minutes Orpah and Ruth. In verse 3, it says that, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, Quickly, we see the consequences, the cost of wandering away from God, from not trusting God as king, but taking matters into your own hands. They go into this land, and all of a sudden, Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, is dead. And suddenly, Naomi is a widow, and she's a single mother of two boys. Verse 4 says, these, these boys of hers took Moabite wives and they, the, one, the name of one was Orpah, the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Now this would have been scandalous for these Israelite boys to take wives from Moab, but this is exactly what they did. And in some ways, you can't blame them. What other prospects did they have? Their dad had uprooted them and, and moved them to Moab. And, and there were no other women that were eligible for them to marry. And so if they were going to carry on the family name and the lineage, they had to marry someone. And so along came Orpah and Ruth. And both, then we learn in verse 5, both Malon and Chilion die as well. So all of a sudden, the wandering away from God cost them the life of the father and the life of the two sons. And Naomi is now a widow with no children and no grandchildren. Apparently, as they had been living in Moab for the last ten years, uh, Ruth and Orpah had been barren, and and they had had no children whatsoever. And so now, Naomi has lost her husband and her sons. She now has daughters-in-law, but there probably makes sense for them to leave her and abandon her as well, and she is all alone. I want you to notice the Downward trajectory the story takes in in these first five verses. This is meant to to grab our attention. What began as even the language that's used here, what began in uh, verse two as or in verse one as a sojourn that was rooted in, in pragmatism. What you know, the end justifies the means. It began as a sojourn in in verse. Uh, let me see, two. I think. Two or three, they stayed there, it says. They, they remained there. I may be wrong on that verse. But eventually, it resulted in them living there for 10 years. So they began to sojourn, thinking we'll go for, go for just a little while, and we'll, we'll get what we need, and we can get back to the land of promise. And all of a sudden, they got there, and they remained there. And then they lived there for 10 years. And this, is, I think, is, is one of the things that, that the Bible wants us to see about when we wander from God, that sin always keeps us longer and takes us farther than what we intended. Also, the downward spiral can be seen in the fact that Elimelech dies. Naomi, when, when Elimelech died, she had a decision to make. All of a sudden, she has no, no husband as the leader in her home. Now, she's the leader. She's the, she's the single mom of these two boys. And in this moment, she knows the history of Israel. She knows the promises of, of Yahweh. And she has a decision to make. In this moment, she can decide, we're going back. We're going back to Bethlehem. But she doesn't. She decides to stay right there, and by choosing that, she prolongs or furthers their wandering. Her sons get married to these Moabite women, which is another step down. And then her sons die and leave her all alone. Just watch this. I mean, this story, I mean, in five verses. I mean, Hallmark Channel normally takes at least, you know, 30 minutes, you know, to develop this story or maybe an hour or so for it to really kind of the, the plot to, oh, no, the bottom's fallen out. Here in the first five verses. And the point for us to see is that our wandering comes at great cost Wandering from God is never a good idea. E- even when it seems to be our only option, wandering is never really an option. Uh, an old preacher, and I don't re- know really where this came from, but it's, maybe you've heard this phrase before when, in speaking of sin, sin will take you farther than you want to go, sin will cost you more than you want to pay, and sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it is as true today as when it was first uttered by whoever. Our wandering comes at a great price. Secondly, we'll look at verses 6 through 13. And the the point that I would hang over these verses before I read them is that our wandering never goes beyond God's reach. Our wandering never goes beyond God's reach. Verse 6. Then she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard that in the fields of Moab... The Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go. Now, all of a sudden, in the middle of this, they, they start back. But somewhere along the way, she's overcome with this doesn't make sense. And she begins to argue with her daughters-in-law, you need to stay. Verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Now, they don't have husbands at this point. She's saying, go and find a husband. I'm releasing you from your commitment to my son. Death has parted you. Go find rest in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. This is, a, this is an emotional thing. These daughters-in-law have gotten to know their mother-in-law for 10 years at least. And, and, and they, they've grown to love her. And this is a hard thing. They've gone through tragedy and loss with one another, and they weep. Verse 10, they said to her, No, we, we will return with, your, with, with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Now, the heading over this is our wandering never goes beyond God's reach. I don't know if you heard it or not, but as I read those verses 6 through 13, in fact, if we read all the way from 6 all the way through verse 22, there is one word that is repeated over and over and over again. In fact, it is repeated 11 times In these verses from 6 to 22, it is one word that is repeated over and over again. Six of them you just heard me read to you in 6 through 13. Did you hear what it was? It's the word return. In Hebrew, it is is shuv. It it is the word that that means to return, to come back. Look at it again, verse 6. She arose to return from Moab. In verse 7, they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. In verse 8, she urged her daughters-in-law to return to their homeland and their people. In verse 10, they said, no, we will return with you to your people. And in verses 11 and 12, twice, she says, she pleaded for them twice to turn back or to return. This gives us a hint about what God is doing. You see, this word in Hebrew is not simply return this is the hebrew old testament word for turning away turning back away from sin and turning toward god's covenant mercy and grace this is the old testament word for repent believe and this is a hint for us as to what god is doing in the entire story of ruth right here in these in the first chapter I want you to feel Naomi's despair, though, before we see how God is is going to bring her back to himself. Feel her despair. In verse 11, she begins to argue with her daughters-in-law with a pretty convincing argument that they do not need to go with her. They need to go back to their home country, go back to their families, because she's hopeless. Now, listen to what she says. Verse 11, I don't have any more sons for you to marry. I'm past the point of childbearing years. I mean, there's no, I mean, if you think about how long she had been married, if she got married between probably ages 15 and 20 in those days, and she was married long enough to have two sons, and and married long enough for those two sons to grow up, and for them to get married and be married for at least 10 years, she is at this point beyond the the years of childbearing. And she's saying to them, "I, I don't have anything left to offer you. Verse 12, she says, I'm too old even to have a husband. She realizes that when she goes back to her land, to Israel, to, to Judah, she is not going to have any prospects knocking on her door. It, this is in the day before there was some dating site where you could swipe this way or swipe that way. She didn't have any options, right? There's no Farmers Only or IsraelitesOnly.com, you know, at all. This is, this is her going back, and she says, I'm too old now. Verses 12 and 13, she says, Even if I had a prospect and got married tonight, would you wait for me me to have sons and for them to grow up? I mean, are you really going to commit yourself to that? Because think about this, girls. In doing this, you're going to wait yourself out of childbearing years yourself. Verse 13, You're both still young enough to marry. Why would you blow your chances coming with me? Verse 13, God's hand has gone out against me even, she says. And the implication there is she says to Orpah and to Ruth, look at my life, God is against me. If you come with me, you're lining yourself with me and you will invite the hand of God against you as well. So Naomi is making this persuasive argument to her daughters-in-law. But don't miss the kindness of God. Feel Naomi's despair, but don't miss God's kindness. Verse 6 says, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God displayed his kindness here in two ways. One is that, that he lifted the famine from the land of Judah. That apparently, since this is in the time of the judges, apparently a judge sent by God had delivered the people and they had repented and God had lifted the famine and he was kind to lift the famine here. Secondly, though, God is kind enough to make sure the news of that makes it all the way to Moab into a field into the ears of Naomi. This is not by chance, this is God's kindness on display. Naomi noticed the kindness of her her daughter's-in-law toward her. She said to her, You've been kind to me in death. You've been kind to my sons. May God be kind to you as well. She notices the kindness of her daughter's-in-law. She noticed and she asked the Lord to bring kindness to them. But what she fails to see, she misses God's kindness toward her. Because she was, at this point, too far down in the depths of despair to be able to notice and I'm not I'm not blaming Naomi I'm not I don't want to cast her in this negative light because I don't want to just I don't want us just to, to move past the fact that she followed her husband her husband died she lost both her sons I mean can you feel the heartache of that would you not also say God's against me She's so far in the bottom of the barrel that she cannot see God's kindness at this point. The clouds over her head are so dark that she fails to notice the ray of sunlight that comes peeking through. God, though, is kind. And I would say to you and to myself this morning that there will be times in in our lives and situations that seem dark and they seem heavy and they seem hopeless And sometimes they come about because of our wandering. And you will be tempted in that moment to say, God is against me, but I promise you that if you will ask God to open your eyes so that you might see, I promise you that even in your darkest days, God's kindness will be there. I don't know what you're going through even at this moment, but I can assure to you, even in this moment, I don't want to make light or make little of your suffering at the moment or what you will go through one day. But I can assure you, and you need to write this down, mark this on on the pages of your heart. That when you are in darkness, you have a God that is kind and is faithful to you always. It may seem small, but it will be there. It will be there to, if you are there because of your wandering, God will show his kindness to you in order to, sh- to draw you back to himself. He will woo you to return. And that's what's happening here with Naomi. You see, our wandering never goes beyond God's reach. Third section today. And, and the title or the point that I would hang over to this section, verses 14 through 22, would be, In reaching out for us, God often takes hold of someone else. In reaching out for us, God often takes hold of someone else. Follow along with me as I read verses 14 through 22. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. I heard one commentator say that just like that, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and then walks off the pages of history of, of Scripture. She just walks. We don't, we don't know anything else about her. But Ruth clings to her. And, and, and Naomi said, see, look, Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Where your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. <laughs> I love the response here. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she, deter- she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She realized, I'm fighting a losing battle. I know when to quit, and she just closed her mouth. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Remember, ten years have, have passed. Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now here, just a side note, Ruth is convinced here. She tells these women, I went away full. God's brought me back empty. If she was so full, why'd she leave? See, oftentimes we're not as full as we think we are. So the the point over these these verses, in reaching out for us, God often takes hold of someone else. I want you to see the obvious grip that that Naomi's God now has on this Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. I mean, look at this. Verse 14, Ruth clings to her. This word cling is the same word that Jesus uses when he quotes from Genesis 2.24 when it talks about marriage, when it says that a man shall hold fast to his wife. And this is what she did. It's not not marriage. This speech by Ruth is often used in a marriage ceremony, but this is, don't miss it, between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. And she clings to her. She holds fast to her. Verses 15-17, through look at the grip God has on Ruth when Naomi tries to push her away. And and in this last-ditch effort there in verse 15 when, when Naomi said, Ruth, look, your sister's gone back. Go with her. Even when she tries to push her away one last time, Ruth argues and says, enough already. Don't you see by now I'm coming with you? Where you go... I will go. And in saying this, she's willing to leave her home. She's willing to leave everything that she knew. Don't don't miss the fact that, that while Naomi's family left what they knew to come to her, she had never done that. She was willing to leave her, her home. She says, Your people will be my people. She's willing to leave not just her home, but her family. She just wanted to walk away from those that she loves. Your God will be my God. And this perhaps is the most important statement of the entire speech. Remember that what I told you about the word here, the Hebrew word for, for return, this is the Old Testament word for repent. And I think that's what's going on here. I think this is a moment where Ruth is converted. I think this is a moment where where God plants the seed of faith into the heart of Ruth. Sinclair Ferguson agrees, and he says this, These words do reveal human affection, devotion, and dogged determination, but they are much more than that. They constitute a confession of personal conversion. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. This is Ruth's statement of faith. This is where she is deciding your God will be my God. I would just take a time out here as we're looking at this hold that God now has on Ruth and I would say to you in this room, if you're here today and and God does not have a hold on you, I would implore you, why not? Just as Ruth had to come to this point where she said, I will leave everything behind in order to go with you, Naomi, because I want your God to be my God. There must be a point in your life where you turn your back on everything, all of your striving, all of your work, all of your affection for this world, and you say, no, 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 I will leave it all for the sake of knowing that He is my God. If you have never had that experience where you have turned from yourself and turned to Jesus Christ, I would implore you today to trust and believe. To don't pull the Elimelech and say, oh, my God is king, and then do your own thing. But to hear pull the Ruth and say, he shall be my God. This grip that God has now on Ruth is evident. She says, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. You don't understand that in in this day and age, to be buried outside of your home country was considered to be one of the worst curses possible. And she's willing to say, I will take on the shame uh, of, of, of my people and I will take on the curse of my supposed God. Because I want your God to be my God. May the Lord, and this is where I think, I also point to the fact that this is conversion because here she uses the personal covenant name for for Israel's God, Yahweh. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi in this moment, she sees this commitment and she says, no more. What an incredible display of commitment by Ruth. Ruth. This grip that God now has on her is, is, is obvious. But then I want you to see what happens. Naomi has been, up to this point, the main character. We are looking at a book, book entitled Ruth, but largely Naomi has been the central key figure so far. And, and as far as Naomi is concerned, Naomi is still the main character. She lives this out before it's ever written down for us today. She's living this out, and as far as she's concerned, she's it. She's the star of the show, and, and why are these things happening to her? Right, But Ruth, up to this point, has only played this supporting role, and Naomi is still thinking that she's the star. She returns to Bethlehem. The whole town is stirred. It just goes to, uh, becomes a buzz. It becomes alive with activity because she comes in. Naomi, they haven't seen her in 10 years. This is, is this Naomi? And don't miss the fact that they noticed this Moabite daughter-in-law with her. Don't miss the fact that they noticed that she was now without a husband, without her sons. Don't miss the fact that 10 years later, she doesn't have any grandchildren following along. And they're not missing any of this. And the town is abuzz. And and one of them, or, or perhaps some of them, come up to Naomi and they say, Naomi, Naomi, is this you? And they may have expected her to respond with gladness and with an embrace, but instead they were met with bitterness. The woman that had left as a pleasant woman had come back as a bitter shell of who she was. And she says to them, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Call me bitter, call me Mara. For the Almighty, she says, she acknowledges here that when, that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Naomi sometimes gets a bad rap for her theology. But her theology is actually pretty sound. She acknowledges here that he is Almighty and that he has the right to rule over the affairs of men. She acknowledges, though, that, that his providence in her life has been incredibly hard. She's not, she's not bucking him. She's saying he's the Almighty. He has dealt bitterly with me. But she's saying it's been hard. And sometimes in your life and in my life, it can become incredibly hard to the place where it can bitter us. It can harden us. The drought that caused the land under their feet in Bethlehem to become like iron, so too can our countenance become when we feel like his providence is hard. Verse 21, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, I want you to just imagine that. Ruth has just declared her allegiance to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And now these women of the town come up to Naomi and they say, Naomi, is this you? Don't call me Naomi. For the Lord, I went away full. He's brought me back empty. Nothing. Imagine Ruth at that moment. All Ruth can do in that moment is to look down at the ground and feel so empty and so worthless and so rejected. In her mind, she must have been thinking, empty? Naomi, am I nothing? Naomi, I love you. But Naomi, in this moment, says, he took me away full, but he's brought me back empty. Empty. The whole town had, had seen this Moabite girl walk in with Naomi and they thought, what is this Moabite girl doing in the midst of us? And she knew, Ruth knew what she was getting into when she, when she declared, your people will be my people. She did not expect this to be easy. She didn't expect to be able to walk right in and then embrace her on the first day. She knew this would be hard. But maybe she didn't know it would be this hard. She looks down with these feelings of rejection and worthlessness. And I think it's good that our passage will end here today because it allows us to feel the the raw, gritty, sometimes painful work of redemption. That God, in his wooing us to return, sometimes hurts us in the process. Naomi, in this moment, is, is hurting, and her hurt is causing her to see no one but herself And again, I'm not blaming Naomi. She's been through a lot. But she's not empty. She's gained a daughter-in-law. And in the gaining of a daughter-in-law, we see in chapter 1 that she also gained a sister in faith. That Ruth has become grafted in to the family of God. Without the bitter dealings Ruth would have never come to to, to that point of faith. Without these bitter dealings that she said, God's dealt bitterly with me, Ruth would have never come to faith. And that's where I get this, that sometimes when God takes hold of us, when he reaches out for us to bring us back to him, that in so doing, he takes a hold of others that are connected around us. We learn that God's sovereign providence in our lives is sometimes hard, but it's always for our good, and that it is often for other people. Verse 22 closes and says Naomi returned, and and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her. They returned to the country uh, from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem, don't miss it, at the beginning of the barley harvest. What was going on in Bethlehem when they left? Famine, no harvest whatsoever. God brings her back at the beginning of the barley harvest. When Naomi left, she wasn't as full as she thought. There was famine in the land. If she could only have eyes to see, and she will, God brings her back to make her more full than ever. And that's what we see in Ruth chapter 1. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful for your providence. God, I pray that you would make me more and more so. Lord, that in, the, uh, Lord, in, in, in my wandering, that you are good enough to pursue me. You are good enough to reach out for me. You are good enough to not let my wandering go beyond your reach. And so, God, thank you for that. God, I, I pray that I would become even more grateful when your providence is hard. Lord, for all of us in this room, God, that we would come to the place where we realize that you wound us because you love us. And you are doing something in us that we cannot understand at the moment. That we better not judge with feeble sense, but instead we should trust you for your grace. Because behind your frowning providence, Lord, you hide a smiling face. God, I pray for the person in this room, Lord, who right now is in the middle of tasting what is bitter. They are tasting the bitter bud of your providence. Lord, I pray, God, that you would, would bring them to the point of leaning into you so that they might understand that sweet will be its flower. God, today for the person in, in this room, Lord, that is hearing me, that does not know you as Savior, God, would you... Would you be merciful and gracious, and Lord, would you give them this grace that Ruth received to say, this God shall be my God. Would you give them, would you grant repentance that says, I'm willing to walk away from everything I know in order to have this God. Lord, I pray, God, that you would do it for your own name's sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Want to give you an opportunity to reflect on what's been said and respond? Perhaps the Lord and just the telling of this story has prompted your heart, has has awakened you to the beauty of of God in Jesus Christ. And today you realize your sin separates you from Him, and you know that you need to walk away from. You need to turn from it. You need to be rescued. And God in Jesus and his work on your behalf is your only hope. Then today, I would implore you to turn. I'll be here on the front row. I'll be seated up here. Please come and, and speak to me. Don't feel as though oh, people will look at me and people will see me. And what will they think? Don't worry about that. Ruth walked into Bethlehem as a Moabite without a husband anymore clinging to a woman who really didn't even want her. In this moment, choose to to align yourself with this God. If you're here today and you are in the moment going through some some bitter providence of God, I pray that you would press into God and ask Him to give you eyes to see His kindness. Ask Him to to show you if there is wandering that is bringing us on. And then ask Him to grant your repentance to turn from it. Whatever it is the Lord is dealing with you on is asking you to do, I'm just going to implore you to do it. You are free to move and go about and come and pray or come speak with me. Whatever you need to do, respond in obedience to him. Let's worship God as we respond to his word.
0: In hidden minds, with never-failing skill, He fashions all His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Great and comforts new. We hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you, O fearful saints, who courage take the clouds that you now tread are made with mercy and will break. In blessings on your head Judge not the Lord by feeble sense But trust Him for His grace Behind a frowning providence He hides a smiling face So God we trust in trust in you when tears are great and comforts few we hope and mercy's ever new we trust in you let's stand and sing that chorus so god we trust in you so god we trust in you Trust in you. When tears are great and comforts few, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The budding of a bitter taste But sweet will be the flower Bind unbelief is sure to err And scan is work in vain God is his own interpreter And he will make it plain So God, so God We trust in you God, we trust in you. When tears are great and comforts few, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. Sing that chorus one more time. So God, we trust. So God, we trust in you. So oh God, we trust in you. When tears are great and comforts few, we hope and mercy's ever new. We trust in you.